Welcome to Beyond the Letters, a Heinemann podcast featuring LGBTQ plus educators, their stories, strategies, and practical advice for creating safe and inclusive educational spaces for queer youth and educators alike. If this is your first time listening, we invite you to go back and listen to our preview episode. I am Maggie Beatty Roberts. And this is Kate Roberts. And welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Um, If you've been listening to this series, you know that we like to start off thinking about why we are doing this podcast. So why are we doing this podcast? All right. Today, I was thinking that um, one reason that I really wanted to do this podcast is I left my classroom in in Chicago a decade ago. Mm. And I've been guest teaching in classrooms all over the country since then. And it's given me this beautiful opportunity to see so many different schools in so many different areas like rural America and urban America. And I just every day get surprised by all these new classroom environments I get to see. And I don't know if I've told you this, Kate, but Mm. recently I walked into a school that um, it just had great representation. Mm. That's the best way I can describe Mm. it. It just was this place where I could just tell that so many different kinds of kids and teachers could see themselves Mm. in this place. And I literally like cried. (laughs) I I was just in the hallway late to my Mm. classroom teaching demo, just in tears because, you know, just thinking how powerful that is for all the different shades of a kid's identity to be reflected in a place that they spend so much time. So just a big shout out to the schools that are, that are creating those environments. Well, and that you see that it's possible, right? Like what's possible out there and that it matters. Mm -hmm. And we are lucky today because we have a guest that embodies (laughs) that possibility. Um, I can't help but smile when I introduce Shamari Reed, teacher, scholar, activist, uh, a doctoral student at Teachers College, Columbia University, and an adjunct faculty member at Hunter College, specializes in curriculum and teaching uh, and teacher preparation. And I cannot wait to talk to you today. (laughs) Welcome, Shamari. Hi, thank you for that beautiful welcome. I'm smiling too. Yes, oh good. (laughs) There's so much I want to talk about and know about your story. I spent time on your website and there are so many different places I could start our conversation (laughs) and like, uh, tell me about your story, Shamari. But one thing I was thinking about was, you know, was there a critical moment that led to the teacher that you are today, the teacher that you have become What's a spotlight in your story that you could share with us as we begin? Oh, wow. What a beautiful question. You know, I would have to say that there are probably critical moments, plural, for me. When I reflect on who I am as a teacher now, as someone who embraces all of my identities, that was a gradual process. And I think it began probably about four years ago, where I gradually began stepping into my power. And by stepping into my power, I mean stepping into my truth because I do personally believe that there is power in knowing who you are and being true to it. Because when you know who you are, then people can't tell you who you are. Mm -hmm. And so my stepping into that role was ongoing. And it began 
2015, 2016, New York City. And it was because for the first time, I was in a city where people were embracing their authentic selves, and I was not. And so it invited me to be more critical of the ways that I wasn't walking in my full power. And so with each day, with each train ride, I started trying to live in ways that were congruent with my soul, in ways that were authentic. And naturally for me, they also appeared in my teaching because for me, my teaching is not divorced or separated from my personal life. Teaching for me is very personal. Teaching for me is very political. And so as I began to walk in my power and in my truth at home and in the streets, consequently, I began to do those same things in the classroom. And so it's gradual. And I'm probably now at a space where I would say I am the most powerful because I'm the most authentic version of myself I ever have been, which goes back to the website you mentioned. I launched that as a way to not reintroduce myself to the world, but to say, this is who I am. This is how I want to show up. This is how I want to live my life. And I'm inviting all of you to come along for the ride. You may like things that I say, you may not, but know that they're always true, that they're always who I am and reflective of how I understand myself and the moment and the time in which I wrote them. Mm. Yes. And can we just take a moment for New York City here? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Can we just take a moment, you know, where we're just reflecting your words back, that, that you were in a place where people knew who they were mm-hmm. uh, and, and we didn't, you know, and that just the power that a community can bring to somebody who is evolving or not yet knowing all the truth that they are. It makes me think about the settings of our world, the settings of our classrooms, the settings of our teacher preparation you know, programs, because I'm just so grateful that you work with future teachers and, and, and you help create these settings for teachers to find themselves um, at that level. When I think that idea of like naming your truth, like it's so universal, right? Like this podcast is focusing on our queer identities, but like how powerful it is to be able to know who you are and how long that takes for for me, for so many people. And I think education is a tricky place, right? Because you're a teacher Mm. and there's this identity. I think sometimes that we're supposed to be a certain way, but like our kids want us, right? Like they don't need to know our private lives. (laughs) They don't need to know about my, you know, credit card debt, my credit card debt, (laughs) (laughs) but they want the real me, right? Not like a version of me that seems sanitized in some way. Right. Right. And I didn't share this before, but now I'm thinking about it. When you speak of New York city, my first day here, I remember riding the J train and I was leaving Bed-Stuy Brooklyn to go somewhere in the city. And I grew up in Oklahoma City. And so I grew up in a place that many would refer to as probably the center of the Bible Belt. And so religion is very pervasive. And because of the sometimes narrow interpretation of religion, people have a hard time accepting things they might not understand like queerness. And so what I learned then was to fade into the background. I learned to be invisible. And so I never thought it would be possible for me to hold my partner's hand or express affection. But on the J train that day, I look over and there was this beautiful, beautiful queer couple, two beautiful men, and they were laying on each other. And I became terrified because in my mind, they were going to be bullied or harassed. And so I was like, oh no, we're gonna approach the next stop. People are going to get on and surely 
they're going to say something. But to my surprise, people got on and they smiled and they applauded. And I was like, whoa, where am I? Where we <laughs> like we can celebrate queer identity. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. And I knew right then I was like, I belong here. I belong here. And I took a photo of them. This is unethical that I keep sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> We're saying our truth here, Shamari. But it is needed. It may be unethical, yeah, but needed. I had to document that moment. And so some days where there are dark days that we all have, I pull that photo out and I say, this is what's possible. This is what's possible. That's beautiful. When that whole thing about like learning to be invisible, mm-hmm. your words, you yeah. know, just the, yeah. just the years of learning to be invisible. And I wonder, you know, about our kids, our, our kindergartners, our third graders, our eighth graders, our 12th graders, I could continue, right? Of how do we help kids unlearn that if it has been learned or prevent that? And so if I angle it to your expertise of working with teachers and as a teacher yourself, what can educators do to help dismantle some of that? Absolutely. I think this is the question I probably get most often, right? Because we talk, I think we talk a little bit about the dangers, right? And the violence that may come from that sort of forced invisibility, but then we don't talk enough about the solutions. And so what I found in my work, both as a teacher and now as a teacher educator, is that We have to spend some time, whether we are pre-service teachers or in-service teachers, thinking about who it is we are and thinking about our identities, even if we don't identify as queer, but reflecting on what are the identities that make up who I am and working toward an understanding of the notion that these identities will inform what I teach. They will inform what I choose to include or exclude in my curriculum. And also, if I am unaware of how my identities very much influence the way that I interact with the world and the way that it interacts with me, it might be also difficult for me to understand how my students are going through the world as young, beautiful people with identities. And so I have to first start with myself. And so I tell teachers all the time, and I I use this analogy of, of a pie. Let's imagine you're a pie. Think about all the slices that make you up. Write them down, reflect on them, ones that may be salient for you in certain spaces, but not on others. But think about all your slices and then ask yourself, how might these slices inform how I teach? And that teaching, of course, will have consequences for our students, including our queer students, but other students. And so I have to begin to interrogate where certain beliefs about certain identities live within me. And I don't think we do enough of that work. And so then we get into classrooms and we have these beautifully crafted curricula But if I still don't believe that queerness is appropriate, for example, in the classroom, I might opt to exclude it anyway. And so I have to become aware of my own beliefs about queerness, for example, in kindergarten classroom. And I have to be honest and ask myself, why might I think this is appropriate or inappropriate? And then understand that by excluding something from the curriculum that you call inappropriate, you are inviting students to do a series of different things sometimes invisibilize themselves, right? And I use it as a verb, but to render themselves invisible. Sometimes you invite them to not see the inherent humanity in their peers. Mm -hmm. And so it comes back to us. To us as people, we have to explore and make sense of our own identities, whatever they are, and understand that they might inform how we are thinking about or not thinking about the identities of others. And I, I think that is the, for me, critical work that I would sort of charge any teacher with 
before or while they're in the classroom working with the future. Yes, and you know, just even too, I'm struck by the pre-service and the in-service mm-hmm. teacher. I think about my young collegiate undergrad self and having some time to to really explore you know those different intersections of mm. who I am and I can kind of take that into the classroom and then I have like standards and assessments <laughs> and forms and you know all these mandates and this idea of how do we preserve space when I'm a year into teaching 5 years into teaching 30 years into teaching as our culture and our our humanity evolves to continue to uh, make space for that work of reflecting on, well, who am I today, right? What are my identities today? And this idea, you know, as you're talking about this critical work that that our curriculum needs to be an invitation to all, you know, um, how you tether what we might deem as inappropriate then condones invisibility, and that just can't be. Mm. Yeah, no, that's powerful what what you what you've just shared. And I think because we we hear from from teachers, and we are teachers too, that idea that we already have so many things to do. And so I have many teachers who tell me, Shamari, this work sounds beautiful, but I have standards. I have to test prep. I already have to have five or six meetings with students' parents. I don't know where I'm going to find time and space to do this work. And what I offer or how I respond is. I'm not asking you to do anything additional or to do anything extra. I'm asking you to think about how you approach what you're already doing. What I'm offering, I think, is a mindset and it's an approach. It's a reflective process in which you come to better understand who you are teaching, how you teach, and why you teach. And so it's not an additional thing on the checklist, but it's almost I'm offering lenses, right, or or a pair of glasses through which I want you to see your work. That's right. Begin fact, asking those critical questions. And so it's not for me, and I think there are other, everyone has their own sort of take on it, but for me, I'm not offering an additional tool kit or checklist. I am offering um, an invitation to put on these glasses, these critical glasses through which you begin to see yourself as someone who, who has identities, multiple identities, and how they might influence who you are and how you are in your classroom. With our work, uh, Maggie and I both used to work at the Reading and Writing Project out of Teachers College. And um, one of the things that we looked at when looking at issues of social justice was being able to identify these parts of ourselves and think through, you know, which of these identities give us power, choice, and voice, and which of these identities muffle that power, choice, and voice or take it away, right? Which makes it harder, which makes it easier, and thinking about those balances, um, and being able to reflect in that way. And I think the other thing you said that's so powerful is the idea of like, it isn't about adding something in. It's not about like shoving in a mm-hmm. social issues unit, right, right. into your year right. or adding a novel to your study or, or something else. But it's about changing how you view yourself, your students, and the role of the classroom. Yes, it's a shift in your beliefs. And I, I think if you were to really analyze intentionally and deeply the tenets of, I don't know, culturally relevant teaching or responsive teaching or sustaining, what they, for me, are all built on is a set of core beliefs that can lead to certain practices, but there are certain beliefs that you have about yourself, about the work of teaching, and about your students. And then those beliefs will 
inform your attitude, which become actions, which produce different consequences. And we know I understand consequences and it's the lives, the life world of students. But if we want different consequences, we need different beliefs. How would you recommend, you know, if a teacher is, again, thinking of this, you know, listening to you and thinking, yes, yes, <laughs> I need to do this work, and also confronted with the crush of daily life, right, and the to-do list a thousand miles long, like, what are some ways that you've guided your students to do this belief work, to uncover our beliefs and, and interrogate them a bit? Absolutely. Wonderful question. And so I have to sort of take a moment to highlight the work of a scholar who I love, who I've worked with, and who has taught me more than she'll ever know, Dr. Yolanda Seeley Ruiz in the Department of English Education at Teachers College Columbia University. And working with her, I learned how to invite people to begin asking themselves questions, questions about where certain beliefs and ideologies about other people live within them. There are many different ways she takes that up, but one that I found helpful is journaling. And so asking teachers to maybe just find five, 10 minutes before the lesson, after the lesson, wherever you have time, and just journal and just write about where you think certain beliefs come from that you have, where certain beliefs that might be um, dangerous live within you. But I think the work of that she calls the archaeology of the self, and these are, again, her words and her terms, so please credit her, but this work is internal, it's personal. I don't think you should write to share with anyone. I don't think you have to dialogue with anyone. These are personal questions. And so when you sit with yourself and you're having your sort of preferred drink, coffee, tea, wine, ask yourself these questions and maybe think about how you can write them out to reflect on them later. That's also going to serve as a way to document your growth as you grow your beliefs or you don't. But I think even that realization that, well, I feel the same way I felt a year ago is also powerful because now that you're aware of it, you can think through what might you need to do differently to work toward growing um, your beliefs in different ways. And so the work itself for me is internal work. It's personal work. And I allot in my classes time for pre-service teachers and service teachers to do that work. We'll spend 30 minutes perhaps every class just writing, engaging questions and prompts, not to be shared out ever but just to reflect on. And many of them have come back after a few years later and have expressed their gratitude, basically saying thank you for inviting me to ask these questions that I wasn't asking myself. But now that I've begun, I can't stop. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Shamari, I hate to put you on the spot, but do you have a, a, any of those prompts or questions sort of on the tip of your tongue, like particularly around LGBT? kids and teachers? Absolutely. So one that I would say for anyone who's listening, if they have a piece of paper right now, a little bit of time, just ask yourself, how do you feel about issues of queerness? How do you feel when you hear the words queer or LGBTQ plus? What images come up for you? What words come up for you? What phrases come up for you? Just document those Jot them down, be honest, be open, be vulnerable. And after you've done that, then ask yourself, what might your jottings tell you about yourself and what might they mean for your relationship to queerness, for example, and your ability or inability to incorporate conversations around identities other than heterosexuality or heteronormativity in your classroom. And so it starts with first, you have to unearth it. 
And so we can't even begin to ask the, the questions of what does this mean, but just what comes up for you when you hear queer? What do you see? Who do you see? And then after you have to ask yourself why you see that in that way. Thank you for that. It just, yeah. it feels like it just frames teaching as, yes, this investigation of others mm-hmm. and the investigation of knowledge, but really the investigation of yourself. Yes. Um, and, and you being a, a voice and a guiding light back to the practitioner, the person behind the words, the person behind the choices that can get so lost in the bells ringing and the papers shuffling. Mm-hmm. Yet the way you speak about it reminds us how critical that investigation of self is because everything filters through me as a teacher, right? That, that I'm this conduit for texts and messages and content decisions. Um, and so your words help interrupt that trance that I think that we can get in, in the classroom and in education of all the things coming out us and your tips encourage us to go within yes. and keep that within nurtured, healthy. And it's, it's, it's a call to remember that even as teachers, we are humans too. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to see our own humanity. If in fact, we want to venture to see the humanity, the inherent humanity in our students. We can't dehumanize ourselves in the process. And that's when it goes back to me that teaching is personal. And for some, it's political because it's human work. You're working with the hearts and minds of young people informed by your own heart and mind as a person. That was so beautiful. I I feel like you should record a series of like just cassette tapes. I'm just going to call it Shamari all the time. (laughs) I just want Shamari all the time. Oh, my Lord. You know, I was thinking... Shamari, if you were to go back to your pre-New York City self, if you were going, being able to go back to that kid in Oklahoma, for me, I was a kid from Southern Illinois, what would you say to him? You are enough. You mm. are enough. You don't have to be anything that doesn't feel real for you or to you. Because I think for a very long time, maybe even after my first six months in New York City, I was performing because it was how I was socialized to be. And when people saw me, they wanted me to be someone else. And so I gave them that because I wanted acceptance and I wanted love. And so I found that the way to get it, whether it was authentic or not, I wasn't worried about, but the way to get attention and love was to perform the role that everyone assigned to me as this young black, they didn't want me to be queer boy growing up in Oklahoma City. And so I gave them that. And so I would just tell that five-year-old, I think is when I began performing, I remember it was five, that you're enough, that you don't have to play these roles. You don't have to memorize the lines that were given to you by someone else who wrote a play for your life that isn't really authentic to who you are. You can just be yourself and that you're enough. What a great message to send to our students, right? That that they don't have to perform otherness, mm-hmm. that, that we want to create climates where they can perform their authentic selves. Um, You've got a speechless, Jamari. Sorry. I mean, I just... It's beautiful. I'm feeling yep. everything. Yep. I think you're speaking to something so deep in us, do you know what I mean? And so often not talked about. 
in education uh, by me, right? By everybody of like, who are you? What is your truth? What is your authentic self? How are you finding time to reflect on how you really feel about things that are happening Mm -hmm. in your classroom and in your world, Mm -hmm. especially as it relates to the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. plus community, you know, just really some of those prompts of like, let's just take a moment. Mm -hmm. How do I, how do I feel Mm -hmm. right now in this moment about queerness, about Mm -hmm. gender identity, about Mm -hmm. um, all of these things, Uh, kids that might be questioning what, where am I with that? But I think there's another kind of performing that's happening these days, which is the flip side performance, right? Where I might perform a kind of progressive liberalism, right? Mm -hmm. Because I know that's what's sort of expected of me. Of Mm -hmm. course, I accept gay people. Of course, I'm anti-racist, right? But sometimes I notice in the work I'm doing that when you push at that a little bit, you realize that there's not, it doesn't mean they, that people don't actually feel it or that I don't actually believe in it, but I haven't had that time to get those messages in my roots and to struggle with them against all the other stuff that's swirling around inside of me. Which is why that work of doing it alone is so important because you can, for me, I cannot lie to myself. I can say things, but deep down inside, I know they aren't true. And so while it might be easier for me to feign certain things for other people or perform for others, when I'm alone in my home and someone asks me how I feel about queerness and I have to go and sit with my own words, I can't lie to myself. What's going to come up for me is going to be real. I can choose to not engage with it and move on. But I think what we're inviting teachers to do is to resist that desire to disengage because it might be uncomfortable and to begin to dig deeper and to do it alone. You're not performing for anyone. You don't have to be correct, even. I think sometimes it's like, I want to say the things that are correct. I don't want to offend you. No, it's you and yourself. You're not going to offend yourself. So be honest with yourself. Be honest about where you stand. Because something I also want to offer is, at five years old, I was thinking about it. And so this idea that, teachers, you aren't the only ones. At five five years old, I was thinking about my identities, plural and how I showed up in the world. And I didn't have the language, right? I wasn't thinking about, am I queer, am I not? But I was thinking like, hey, I actually don't want to do that thing. I want to do this thing, or I like this. I prefer that color. And I was trying to find myself. I was looking for representation, and it was never affirmed or confirmed by my teacher, perhaps because she wasn't thinking about it. And so in her mind, well-intentioned, but consequently, she was erasing me because I never saw myself in the classroom ever. And I wonder how might my life had been different if she had just thought about different things and reflected on it, if it would have changed her practice at all. And I wouldn't have had to learn how to perform my own erasure, really, right? And then have to unlearn it years later in New York City, where I see these two men engaging in public displays of affection, and I'm scared for them. That was me trying to erase them, too, because I had been taught that to survive as a queer person you have to erase that part of you or at least hide it. And so I would just remind teachers that at five, I was thinking about it. I can't speak for all youth, LGBTQ plus youth, and I will not, but I can say that at five years old, I was thinking about all kinds of things. And it's not always related to sexual acts. It was not that for me, but I was thinking about different things that I wanted to do, but that I was told that I couldn't because I was identified or I was identified as a cisgender boy, a male boy. 
and it sort of foreclosed to me opportunities to be my full self. So we could do this all night, but we do have to start to wrap up our time. And so we... I'm already looking at my calendar of when I'm yep. passing through New York City. <laughs> so I can pop on up there to Harlem and yes. you can catch a cup yes. of coffee. Mm-hmm. Yes. But we do have a way of closing that has a potential tone shift in a way, but we like to close our podcast out with the closing five. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Five questions, prompts, things we would we would love to hear <laughs> your answers to because it will only add to the layers of tomorrow. <laughs> Are you ready for the first one? I am ready. All right. Number one, you'll never see me without my earrings. Oh yes. <laughs> Describe please. What do they look but, like? Well, so I have a lot. I actually have a box. And I tell I tell folks. If you have seen with all my earrings, you should consider yourself very special because I wear them everywhere. I take them off and close and lock my door. And then I put them on before I unlock my door. And so no one's really ever seen without them. That's amazing. What are the ones that you are wearing right now? Oh, these, if these, you are wearing Yeah, of course. <laughs> They're these sort of diamond, really small diamond studs. Those are my favorite. I was into hoops for a while, like gold hoops I've been doing all of 2019. They work. They work. But today, today I want to keep it traditional because I know I was going to be talking with you all. And I was like, well, what makes me feel the most like myself and the most comfortable? So my first pair actually were these sort of square-shaped diamond studs. And I got them when I was 17. I had to fight my mother for them. And I got them. And, you know, when you get earrings, I say you can't take them out for, I think, I forget how many months. I grew attached. And I was like, I'm never taking these out. And I did because of hygiene. But then I put new ones in, right? (laughs) And so over the years, I've experimented from different shapes to large ones to small ones to ones that dangle. But I love my earrings. That's it. That's a good one. That's a good one. I mean, this might go to the second question. It might go to the second question. Which is my favorite article of clothing. Blue jeans. Oh, uh, yeah. Blue jeans. Nice classic. <laughs> I tell mm-hmm. everyone, I am a jeans person. If I can wear jeans, and, and a t-shirt and jeans specifically. Um, yes. Please don't make me put on a tie or a blazer or a vest. Please let me wear t- a t-shirt and jeans, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm happy. That's it. Your first concert. Beyonce's I Am World Tour. It was a birthday gift. No. You serious? Yeah. Oh. So, so I had a pretty good start, no. right, to live music. I mean, you took my breath away with your words before, but you just took my breath away. Lifeless. That I is done. unbelievable. I'm on the floor. I, Are you serious? Yes, and my sister gifted that to me and four of my friends. And so I actually need to ask her, like, I don't know where she got the money because we had pretty good seats, mm. but... Don't ask questions. Don't just, ask, just, no. just take the tickets. <laughs> so that was amazing. And I've been to, I think, five Beyonce concerts since then. Mm-hmm. 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 After the podcast, we will tell you our Beyonce story. I was yeah. about to tell it yeah. live. You right can now. tell it live but, if you, you want. I, I embrace it. I, want to <laughs> I just want to say, being next to Kate Roberts at a Beyonce concert <laughs> is the best. <laughs> yep. oh, First it. queer icon? First one, Big Frida, Queen of Bounce Music in New Orleans. Yes. We have our hands up. We have our hands up. <laughs> yep. Yep. All the way. And now, fifth question, current queer icon. India Moore, star of FX Pose. Oh, beautiful. She's just yes. a young, honest voice. 
And I'm like, yep. wow, you're so honest, so authentic. You're so who you are. You're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. At what age? Like, how have you managed to walk in your power so early? So it's season inspiration mm -hmm. to me. I'm constantly rethinking the way that I do life because of her. And how can I be more honest and more authentic and walk even more in my power? Because she's very vocal, even if it sometimes results in her being uninvited from certain spaces. She always right. chooses herself every time. Mm -hmm. That's it. Well, that is a beautiful place to close, Jamari. Thank you so much Thank you for all. your voice. Thank you. Your for beauty. Beautiful, beautiful opportunity. Absolutely. We'll stay Likewise. in touch. Thank you. Beyond the Letters is a production of Heinemann Publishing and the Heinemann Podcast. To learn more about our guest this week, visit blog.heinemann.com. 